So, 1 Corinthians 7, we're going to read the first seven verses, and uh, we will be dealing again with the whole chapter uh, this next three weeks. Chapter 7, verse 1 says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has its own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. This is the beautiful, beautiful sauciness that is going straight through books of the Bible and not skipping around. Uh, everything is God's Word. Everything in there is God's Word to us and has been given, breathed out by God to teach us and train us and at times rebuke us and correct us in all righteousness and equip us for every good work. So whether you are married or you are divorced or you are single or you are never going to be married because that's been what you have decided or you feel God has called you to do, this is for you. I know we read this and we go, Oh Lord, why did I come today? And the men are like, that's why we came today, right? So I want you to, uh, to listen and to hear uh, what God's Word says and to know that it's His Word and not mine. Uh, in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul, the writer, uh, he spent the first six chapters addressing the different failures, really pretty major failures, that had been reported in the church. See, a group of people came to Paul and they reported to him some verbal things, but they also had a letter for him from the church directly. See, a few years after Paul planted the church, which I believe is recorded in Acts 18, I might be wrong there, um, they, the church within five or six years, and that's how old it is, had somewhat forgotten who they were in Christ. They'd forgotten their identity in Christ, and so that's why Paul begins with the gospel very boldly. The church had grown, it was full of people, it was full of spirituality, it was exciting to be a part of, it was big. And yet they floundered because the culture around them grew as well and the pressures were overwhelming. So what happened as a result is they brought the culture in and it began to divide their church. They started competing against one another for respect and position in the church. They began to deny the cross, like literally said, we're not going to talk about the crucifixion anymore because that's embarrassing. And they began to pursue the wisdom of the world and, and talk about all kinds of philosophy and and different wisdom of the day. They began questioning Paul's authority. We see that played out even in much more detail in the letter. And they began suing each other in court in front of secular judges. And then as they ignored their own horrible sin in the church, which dealt with people sleeping around and, and all kinds of sexual immorality, They pursued the sin in the world, as we saw last week, and and married men were just kind of going after prostitutes. So Paul spoke some very hard words to them. 
And as we see in 2 Corinthians, they were words that made them cry. We uh, separate ourselves from this letter a little bit, and we're not being directly spoken to as the Corinthians were, but it was hard words to hear, hard words to receive, to be rebuked as Paul was rebuking them, to be face or come face to face with their sin, and they, they wept. And Paul said, I'm the second letter to the Corinthians. Not that he's happy they wept, but he's happy that they wept tears of repentance, that it changed them, because sometimes we need hard words. So having dealt with kind of all the major failures that they were somewhat hiding, they weren't telling him about, but it had been reported to him, Paul's now ready to address all the questions that they asked in this letter that he has. He had received a letter, been carried by a few guys, and in his response in this Corinthian letter from chapter 7 to about 11 or 12 there, you're going to hear the phrase, now concerning the things you wrote, as he starts here, several times. So he's referencing this letter here. And he doesn't directly say what the questions are, but as he answers them, we can infer what they're about, and it's everything about what we're talking about today, um, to spiritual gifts, to things that are going on in communion, to all kinds of issues that they have. But more than uh, Paul's directness in just answering the questions, I think I appreciate most that the Corinthians asked them. That they asked questions. See, too many Christians, I think, and you may be a Christian, you may not. Too many Christians, young and old, as they are kind of in culture and living life, I think fail to ask enough questions. They fail to ask enough questions of their pastor. They fail to ask enough questions of trusted, wise friends who know biblical truth. And they don't ask enough questions about how biblical faith, how their Christianity applies to everyday life, to the relationships, to their money, to our work, to our sexuality, every little detail of our lives. We kind of create these categories of, well, this is my spiritual religious life, and this is my other life that I work out in during the week, and they sometimes intersect, but most of the time they don't. The Bible has a lot to say about a lot. In fact, I would say the Bible has a lot to say about everything. And it has real, genuine, practical application to some of the little questions we have about culture stuff like tattoos, to what do we do with marriage relationships and bigger decisions regarding that. But unfortunately, it seems that many of us wrongly believe that there isn't an answer for this little insignificant question or a complex question. Or we wrongly assume we know the biblical answer, something we maybe have been taught or raised with that actually may not be biblical. Or... We wrongly exchange, this might be the most common thing, the world's answers for biblical ones. So we don't know the answer, or we don't want to ask for the answer, or we think we know the answers, and instead we're like, well, the world does it this way, let's just follow in suit. That's what Corinth is doing. But at least these guys are asking questions. So chapter 7 here provides some very practical advice that really commands about marriage and singleness and divorce and remarriage. And so we're going to spend the next three weeks talking about these things. See, chapter 6 dealt with 
uh, sexuality outside of marriage and the harm and the destruction and all those things that happen when you're outside of God's design for this gift of sexuality. And now he turns to addressing sexuality inside marriage. Paul is uh, not going to develop, and I'm not going to either, a full theology of marriage in this chapter. He gives us a lot, but he more fully does that uh, in the letter to the Ephesians, specifically in chapter 5. But here, Paul just gives some very explicit, direct, practical commands about sex and marriage. And it's going to make many of you uncomfortable. Not because how I speak about it, right? Pastors make two mistakes, and I always said this. They're either silent, and they don't say the right things, as in they don't say anything at all, or they're sacrilegious. And they are flippant about presenting it. So I'm not flippant, but I'm going to be very direct and frank, because the Bible is. But I do recognize, when you hear sermons about sexuality, There can be a lot of negative response to it, and I mean that by your heart. Like, a lot of you get uncomfortable, and the question isn't, what has Sam said? The question is, why do you feel that way? Because a lot of it has to do with the fact that passages like this can be, we've got to be careful with them, because men and women, I should say, men tend to gravitate towards them and love them, and women tend to hate them for the same reason, which is they both have a kind of a, a screwed up view of the role of sexuality in marriage, of its placement and importance. We are, um, well I should say, Paul has already indicated in the previous chapter that sexuality is a uniting act. It's an act that unites people unlike anything else. And the last chapter, Paul forbid prostitution, not because it was illegal to do, but because of another reason. It was legal. It wasn't even unnatural to desire. The problem was it is it made you one flesh with someone who was not your spouse. And Paul refuses, as our culture tries to do, to separate physical oneness from all the other kinds of oneness and the bonds that are created in that oneness emotionally, mentally, mentally, and even physically. A well-known pastor said it this way, the Bible doesn't counsel sexual abstinence before marriage because it has such a low view of sex, but because it has such a lofty one. The biblical view implies that sex outside of marriage is not just morally wrong, but also personally harmful. And so, though God wants us to experience a closeness with a lot of people, He's built us for relationship, He wants us to experience a very unique level of oneness with one particular person. And that is your spouse. God said it is not good for man to be alone. We are built for relationship. And the marriage relationship is designed by God to be that place, that relationship where you are most intimately known, valued, and appreciated for who you are as a person without fear of rejection. To be, in every sense of the word, naked and unashamed. See, the intimacy of a covenant marriage mirrors, according to Ephesians 5, the intimacy that Jesus has with us through the Gospel. It is the place where we are fully known, right? Jesus knows 
everything there is to know about me. Every darkness, every fear, every hope, every disappointment, everything, and yet He loves me. There is nothing. And I've been married for uh, almost 18 years, which seems like such a long time. It's crazy. It's like yesterday we were getting married. I've been married for almost 18 years, and I can say without hesitation that I love my wife deeply. And I say that knowing that there are pastors who stand before churches and preach sermons on sexuality and marriage who are unhappy in their marriages and have disasters of marriages. So I I, I want you to know with all the confidence in the world that, that your pastor is deeply in love with his wife. She is deeply in love with him. We love each other. We enjoy each other. I would chase after her when I married her when she was 19. I would marry her before that if I knew what I knew today because she's just awesome. Okay? And so our relationship, if you will, I've seen that there is nothing more beautiful, more satisfying, more nourishing, and more captivating than oneness with my bride. And there's all kinds of oneness, right? There's, the, there's an intellectual oneness I have with my bride. The idea of where I begin to appreciate how she thinks about life because it's different than how I think. Okay? We approach things very differently. We think differently. And I could very easily go, you're different, weird, right? Or I could embrace and go, man, this is weird, but I want to know why you think this way. And she wants to know why I think this way. There's emotional oneness. We're understanding how she feels about things. Like, why does that make you cry? Why does it make you upset? Why doesn't that make you upset, right? There's an emotional oneness where it's not just I'm observing you and that's it. I'm, I'm a student of you and she's a student of me. We're learning and we're appreciating. We're becoming one as we emotionally connect. And it's different. We feel different things about different things. But there's a social oneness where I watch her interact with people, right? And she watches me. And she has like hand signals for me to stop doing things, and I don't have any for her. I don't figure that out. But we have a oneness, right? And I watch her, how she engages with people, and there are things that that fill her up with people, and there are things that don't fill me up. Like we're introverted and extroverted in different ways, and we understand that and see that and appreciate that. And we become one, and she begins to know how I'm going to react in certain situations, and I know how she's going to react in certain situations. No one else might know, but we know. We know when we're faking it, right? We know when we're, what we're thinking at the time, what we're feeling, even though we're, hey, yeah, it's great, wonderful, and they know. There's a spiritual oneness that's beautiful, and by spiritual I mean I get to see how she engages with God and learn how she best engages with the church. And I, you know, just because I'm a pastor, I wasn't a, pa- I wasn't a pastor seven years ago, eight years ago, so we saw that all work out. It's not like even my relationship is just pastoral. She sees how I wrestle with God, and I see how she wrestles with God, and we appreciate that about each other. It's different. She's like a prayer warrior. I mean it. She's like, girl can pray, right? Me, I'm like a prayer shadow boxer. I can pray, but not like that. She's just like, whoa, you could pray, girl, okay? That's how we're different. I study, love study. I worship God through study at times. And she is starting to do that more. We appreciate about each other. Then there's experiential oneness where she has experiences I never have. 
I have experiences that she doesn't have. And we share experiences together, like the birth of our children, right? She experienced that a little bit differently than I did. <laughs> but it's an experience that we have. And I, after 18 years, we have now almost crossed over being together. I think we're there longer than we've been apart. And so now we're experiencing a new chapter in life that not even her parents, you know, experience, or her sister. There's even recreational oneness, right? Where there are things that she enjoys to do in life that I don't, but I want to. Like she's a runner. She likes to run. I hate to run. Okay? I think it's a, if it doesn't have a ball and a net or something, it's just a waste of time. So she, but she'll invite, you want to go running? Oh, no, I hate running. She's like, well, we can go running together. We never run together. We run at the same time. But you're like, I mean, there was a time when I was like stud soccer player. I'm like, come on, babe, keep up. Not anymore. It's like a locomotive that like, goes up these hills and stuff. I'm like, this is dumb. I look like that, you know, big chubby husband that like, letting the wife run, and it's not fun, okay? But she loves it. She loves to run, okay? There are things that I like to, to do and to recreate with, and, and they're not the same as her, but she appreciates them and she embraces them. There's a oneness that is built, and the longer we are together, the more learn about each other, the closer we are two people that are becoming one beautiful person. And it's awesome. It is awesome. And all these things, whether it be emotional, intellectual, so all these things, they are gifts that we can withhold or give to one another. I don't have to tell her how I think. I don't have to tell her how I feel. But there are gifts that we want to enjoy with one another. And then there's, of course, physical ones. And this is the, the one that the world seems overly preoccupied with. And it is a kind of oneness. And the world seems to only have um, better techniques for greater physical pleasure. And if you think I'm like, you know, kidding, you just look at books and the magazines at the grocery store. That's all they offer in terms of physical oneness. It doesn't go beyond that. It's very superficial. But I'll tell you, we don't need any new books. We have a great book that's written, and, and nothing's ever written better than it. It was, got, it was right the first time. And it's very dangerous to ignore what God's written specifically about physical oneness. See, all other aspects, and God says this in His Word, all... All other aspects of oneness are equally important. But not all of them are as equally powerful. Sex is a divine tool for oneness. And it's a powerful tool. And it is designed for much more than just reproduction or recreation, as the world might want you to believe. It is an invention that God designed an experience that he created and it's a gift that belongs to him still and he gave this gift to men and women in a covenant marriage to help them give themselves fully to one another and it is i believe the most powerful self-giving tool we have to connect us deeply and to renew our covenant regularly now as Paul responds to the first question that the Corinthians has, you have to remember, these are new Christians. 
So they're becoming Christians in a very sexual culture. And they're beginning to ask questions about, what do we do with sex? Now some of them, obviously, according to chapter 6, are making the wrong decisions. But some of them are going the opposite way, and you have a group of people that are trying to promote abstinence as a more spiritual path. you got people who have not gotten married thinking, maybe I should just not have anything to do with this. you got people who are married saying, uh, maybe I should have nothing to do with this. You have people even saying, well, I'm a Christian now, and they're not. Maybe we should divorce. I've got kids. Should they get married? Should they stay away from all this? What do we do? Good questions. And some have argued there's, if you look in the beginning of chapter 7, the second half of verse 1, it says there's a little quotation marks. Now, the Greek doesn't have any quotation marks. So the translators are trying to imply that maybe where it says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, is the statement that Paul is responding to. It said, right, it's good not to have sex with anybody, right? Basically, in view of the tempting sexual culture they live in, some are wondering if it would be better just to abstain from sex completely forever, to never get married, and to otherwise just stay away from the opposite sex. So Paul says there's absolutely nothing wrong with abstinence he said it's very right until marriage, but it's even nothing wrong with it indefinitely. Some will certainly have that gift. We'll talk about singleness next week. In some ways, he'll even argue that it's preferable, but he will not argue that it's more spiritual. The monks and the Catholics didn't get that way. But Paul does say that considering all the Rampant adultery and prostitution and homosexuality and other forms of sexual immorality in the culture, marriage is the preferred method to combat sexual temptation. Like it's a war. You could try to abstain, but most of you should get married. And the first thing he states is that each man should have his own wife and each wife her own husband. And the second thing he states is that the married couple should have. Lots of sex. I'm surprised more men aren't saying, Amen! Right? Women are like, Oh Lord. They're like, I'm glad we came to church this morning, honey. This was a brilliant idea. And you might find it strange that Paul has to declare that abstinence in marriage is wrong. But the truth is, there's a lot of broken marriages in this church and elsewhere where the sexual relationship Uh, has been put on the shelf for all kinds of reasons, and the marriage is suffering because of it. The truth is, for those who have been married for any length of time, you realize pretty quickly that the culture's image of sexual behavior in marriage is not entirely accurate. Though a lot of our expectations have been created by that image, and there's been disillusionment because those expectations which are wrong haven't been met. So the culture has affected us. And just life has, because time and children and illness and work and age and just the ever-changing practicalities of life often erode the healthiest of marriages through the unhealthiest of sex life. If, again, that assumes it was ever healthy to begin with. Now, What Paul is going to argue is that sexuality is an indispensable part of covenant marriage. 
And you will have books, and uh, I saw one just this week as we were preparing for this boot camp, a video series, and they will say that sexuality and marriage is like the end product. If everything else is going right, that will be fruitful. I disagree with that partially. What I mean is that I agree that that will probably be the case, but I don't want to limit sex to just being the final product of a healthy marriage. In truth, it is essential to a healthy marriage. It's essential to a healthy marriage. Paul writes in verse 3 that the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That's a very powerful verse. Did you know that was in the Bible? Men are like, no, but I'm glad I do now. And women are like, no, but I'm not so sure I'm excited about that. That's a powerful verse. It's a very powerful verse. And Paul speaks about sexuality and marriage as an obligation in the relationship. Sexual oneness is an obligation of covenant marriage. In other words, it's something husbands and wives owe one another. Now, these obligations are not found in some man-made prenuptial agreement. Any wedding I've done, we've never sat down and said, all right, here are the rules for sexuality. Here are the expectations. Sign on the dotted line. Never had that. That's because these obligations are biblical. They're placed on the marriage by the one to whom marriage belongs, which is God. And as God... He declares that husbands are to give wives what they are due. That's the language. And that wives are to give husbands what they are due. And for some reason, and it, I will put it on the fact that men have failed to lead and love their wives well. But when men read that verse or hear those kind of statements about being due, for some reason that always sounds better to men than it does women as if it's a woman's duty and a man's privilege. And the sad thing is, that was the culture of Corinth. And that's the very opposite of what Paul is saying. But the culture hasn't seemed to change. And our attitude maybe hasn't changed. That meaning, our attitude hasn't become more biblical, it's remained unbiblical. But I will say this, and I I mean this, and I'm going to speak to you men directly. And please hear me. Never, ever, ever demand sexual rights. Ever. Don't you dare abuse Scripture like that. And don't you dishonor your Lord or hurt your wife that way. There is nothing more destructive to a marriage than husbands or wives demanding sexual rights. And I've seen it. I've seen it destroy marriages and destroy hearts. That being said, the Bible is very clear that there are rights to give. There are rights. And what I mean is these rights are mutual and these rights are valuable and these rights are required. See, within a marriage, there are roles that men and women have. We all know that. We may not be able to exactly explain how they all work out and what the details of all of them are, but the reality is men and women 
have roles in the marriage. Men have certain responsibilities, God-given responsibilities. And women have individual God-given responsibilities in the marriage. And fulfilling these will ensure that the marriage is cultivated in a way that's healthy and it's growing and it's joyful. And the marriage is dependent upon women fulfilling their roles and men fulfilling their roles. These responsibilities should not be ignored. They shouldn't be confused as in what do men do, what do women do. And they should never be abused. But that is what we see in our world. I see that in the church. I sit down with marriages and typically we see roles broken. Roles confused. Roles ignored. Roles abused. But relative to sexuality, looks like there's some shared responsibilities as well. And what I mean is that not only does Paul affirm equality in the marriage, right? Every man should have a wife. Every wife should have a husband. They should each be given their rights. This isn't just a man's thing or a woman's thing. There's a mutual responsibility in sexual oneness. Paul's focus here is not on, and he's trying to get both husband and wife to think this way, it's not a focus on what you are responsible to give, what you owe me. He's trying to change everyone's focus whether they're a husband or a wife, as what I am responsible to give, what I owe you, how I can serve you, how I can care for you, how I can sacrifice for you, how I can love you. That's very different. And quite frankly, most people, married or not, get into marriages today with a very consumeristic attitude of what am I going to get from this? What are the benefits of this marriage? How am I being robbed right now of what I get? That's why we're seeing so much brokenness in marriage. Sexuality was never designed as a means of self-gratification. And it was never to be divorced from all the other covenant oneness that is supposed to be at work there. And when that happens, though, when you divorce it like that, all you're left with is a physical experience that can be used, abused, evaluated, perverted, and ultimately hurt both the husband and the wife's ability to ever to commit or trust another person. So you have certain rights here to give in marriage. Certain things that you sign up for. Certain things that I counsel as we go through pre This is the role. This is God's plan. This is His way. But did you also know that when you entered a covenant marriage, you actually gave up some rights? gave up ownership rights. See, in a marriage, Paul says that neither the husband or the wife has exclusive rights over their own bodies. That is not a real popular thing in culture. You know, and I've told Kaylin more than once, I said, hey babe, this is all yours. <laughs> Do with it as you will. Right? I remind my wife of her authority over my body constantly. Every time I get out of the shower, every time I'm walking downstairs, just in case you've forgotten, this is yours, biblically. And she says, oh, thank you. (laughs) Glory. She's usually, yeah. It doesn't seem, you know, if she were to say that to me, which I don't recall her ever doing, it would be a very different reaction. I would immediately go into worship, and it would be awesome. She doesn't like to pull off 1 Corinthians 7 too often. But, in all seriousness, 
Oneness in marriage is that deep. It is so deep that we, in a very real sense, belong to each other. More than once, as you read the Song of Solomon, you see that the young bride declares, I am my beloved's and he is mine. I am my beloved's and he is mine. See, God's marriage covenant obligates us to give authority over our own body to another. And the ruling over another's body is not some license to control your spouse or to gratify yourself. Far from control, it is the mutual giving of one another as the deepest expression of love possible. Now when someone lives out self-denial in marriage, that kind of self-denial, denying their own maybe feelings, denying their own intellectual obstacles, there is an incomparably awesome level of God-designed oneness experienced in that relationship. I'm not just talking about the act. There's a oneness that's created when someone really gives themselves over like that. And what's happening there is something that is only of God. Because what's happening is that the love from the Lord, the love that we've experienced from the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5 speaks about this, so controls us that the love for this other person overrides any love that I have for myself. See, marital oneness was not designed to have your needs met. Rather, it was designed in this beautiful way so that the meeting of that other person's needs would satisfy your needs. That's beautiful. And very countercultural and very counterintuitive because we actually believe most of the time that, no, this is about, I need to get my satisfaction. How can I get this? How can I get that? How can I arrange my life and use this person or or put myself in advantage so I can get what I think I need as opposed to self-sacrifice in the ways of Christ? And those who experience total oneness in a relationship, those who are willingly giving themselves over, here's what they declare, here's why. It's the love of Christ, and it moves them to say, I feel so loved, and I feel safe enough to make myself vulnerable so that your desires may be fulfilled. But the truth is, not everyone is willing. The truth is, even in this church, over two services, there will be three after this evening, there are many marriages that are broken, and those who are unwilling to give over for all kinds of reasons. And there are many husbands and wives who are looking at the other spouse and thinking even now like, yeah, I'm glad you're here because you definitely aren't willing. And so, if you feel like your spouse is unwilling to fulfill this obligation to you, that's clearly in Scripture. Don't you dare pull out 1 Corinthians 7 and start talking about your rights. Instead, do this. Ask yourself why they don't feel love enough, safe enough, or free enough to give themselves to you. And then, ask your spouse that question. And I pray, by God's grace, they'll be honest enough to tell you the answer to that. And to start a conversation that will lead to true joy that God has for you. Paul also speaks in verse 5 as he kind of closes down what the 
standard is, what the plan for marriage is and sexuality, he speaks to those people who are depriving one another. He speaks to the married couples who, for one reason or another, are not giving themselves and they're withholding. He says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Uh, I've engaged with a lot of married couples, young and old, newly married, married for many years, married separated. One of the most frequent causes of marital conflict is when one spouse has unilaterally refused to grant the gift of sexuality to the other. That's one of the first things that typically and often comes up. Instead of giving themselves to the other, they withhold. And sometimes this is because they feel unloved or unsafe or all those things in the marriage that I talked about. Sometimes it's the result of sexual brokenness from previous relationships. Sexuality is supposed to be a joy-filled seal of the covenant that enriches the relationship, but it can easily be used and is often used as a weapon to punish. Some of you are using it as a weapon right now. Paul says very clearly, do not deprive one another. In fact, he uses the same word that in chapter 6 was used to defraud in that lawsuit. So deprive one another actually means you are robbing, stealing, or otherwise cheating someone of something that is owed them. What's owed them is intentional, frequent, and joyful sexual intimacy if you're married to them. Don't believe for a second, and I probably speak to the wives mainly, because it's very rarely for a man to withhold himself, let's be honest. Men, you should never, ever, ever demand your sexual rights, but women, in particular wives, don't believe for a second the lie that withholding yourself like you are is just the leverage you need to help fix or heal whatever brokenness there might be in your marriage. That's not the path to healing. What you're doing is wrong and harmful and making it worse. Now that's not to say that you should give of yourself by unabandoned and not resolving anything. No, Paul's pretty clear. While telling the Corinthians that abstinence in marriage is wrong, he cracks the door to tell them there are times when it may be very right and good to take a pause, if you will, for the cause. The cause being a healthy, joyful marriage. But it's wrong to independently and arbitrarily withhold sexual intimacy from your spouse because doing so, it doesn't just harm the other person. When you're one flesh, guess what? You're just harming yourself. But Paul says that husbands and wives may abstain from sexual intimacy for a time. But there are certain rules implied and stated. And I say this knowing that I've already preached and will preach to people who I've had conversations with, with wives in particular in marriages that are withholding. And they will say, well, this guy, my husband, is emotionally abandoned me. He does not care for me. He does not this, this, this in such a way that they create a picture and say, I fully understand why you would not want to give yourself over. The only problem or hesitation I have is that that same person, and really all the people I talk to like that, 
Very few, if any of them, ever ask, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say I ought to do for this situation? Didn't ask enough questions. So I'll tell you very clearly what you should do. If you're experiencing brokenness, if you're single and you want to avoid it someday, here's some basic guidelines. There are only four, but they're hugely important. Paul says, first and foremost, there needs to be a conversation about sexuality. It's clear that these two people are they're coming to agreement. They're talking about it. When was the last time, if you've been married for one year, one month, ten years, or twenty years, thirty years, when was the last time you had a very open dialogue about sex with your spouse? My guess is that a lot of us have all kinds of conversations about our disappointments and our expectations with friends. And we tell them what isn't happening and what should be happening and why it's not happening. The question is, why aren't you talking with the one person who's supposed to know you most about it? See, your spouse is the one out of all people. And there are a lot of friends. We all have a, a huge number of friends, I'm sure, and family members, but there's only one person, if you're married, that God has given you who is to know your heart and everything that's in it. One person you're supposed to be 100% transparent. One person who is your true best friend, your companion, your ally, your partner, your coworker, your lover, who is to know everything there is to know about you. All your fears, all your disappointments, all your hopes, all your joys, and that about sexuality as well. God's Word speaks very honorably but very frankly about sexuality, and so should you, whether you are newly married or even married for 40 years. You need to have frank conversations about it because there are disappointments and expectations not met and brokenness that can happen. Conversation never, ever ceases. I'm going to be talking to my wife about sexuality when we're 85. Guaranteed. Okay? And she's going to be talking to me about it. And she's still going to be talking to me about purity. Guaranteed. Okay? Even if we're in a home together and all I'm looking at is old ladies walking by, I guarantee my flesh is so sinful, I will struggle and I will need my wife. The conversation never ceases. It just changes. And this is how you create oneness. You start a conversation. And some of you just need to start a conversation. Some of you are raised by prudes and you act like prudes about sexuality. And some of you act like 13-year-olds and you're flipping about it. You need to have an honest, open conversation with each other. And you also need to discuss it with your kids. That's a whole other issue. But second, not only is conversation, there's agreement about sexuality. With more conversation, you may actually come to a decision that, you know what? We actually need to abstain for a while. Or let's talk about why we have been. But you're going to have an agreement. There's a shared agreement never a, a unilateral decision by one person. So you imagine the kind of confusing message this sends to people, whether husband or wife, right? When you have a spouse who decides on their own to deprive the other, and there's absolutely no conversation as to why or what they're feeling. What kind of message do you think the other spouse receives? Because the enemy gets into our minds and starts playing tricks with us and lying to us. Wow, I'm not loved. I'm not affirmed. Are, are, they, are they looking at someone else? 
What's wrong with me? Men and women do that. It leads us into all kinds of resentment and bitterness and jealousy and research as we start looking at emails and looking at texts and like imagining what could be there even if there's nothing there. Because there's no conversation, there's no agreement. Men will feel disrespected, women will feel unloved, and the marriage will slowly fall apart. Agreement is essential for cultivating that oneness. Third, there's a commitment to pray about sexuality. That's kind of weird. When was the last time I prayed about sexuality? Do you pray about sexuality? I pray that I will be attracted to my wife. pray that daily. Why? Because I know how easy it is to become unattracted to your wife. And when she is not, quote, attractive, maybe by the world's standards, I want her to still be my standard. Pray about sexuality. As you're abstaining, you're praying about something. It's not prayer for your job, a prayer for your kids. It's not prayer for Aunt Matilda's bunion. It's prayer for your restored relationship. That's why you're abstaining. So if you're withholding it right now, and you're abstaining, and you have no agreement about it, and you're not praying about it, or you're just praying about that other person that they'll change so you might feel like doing it again, you're in the wrong. Prayer is this active dependence upon God. It gets to a place where you're in a relationship and you go, I don't know what's broken. I don't know how to fix this. And I've done all the work. Guys are bringing flowers. Girls are vacuuming the you know, house. They're trying to do all these things, look pretty, whatever. And nothing's working. It's a declaration that my work cannot fix this. God's going to have to come in and intervene. We have a, we have a brokenness in relationship that's made us indifferent and even hostile towards one another in this particular area, and we need God to intervene. It's a commitment that we have and need God in our lives. And here's a, now it's a prayer commitment isn't like, I'm going to pray about it once tonight, and if it doesn't happen, I'm going to say the pastor's full of bunk, and that didn't happen, and I'm not having sex, so everything's a problem, okay? God isn't there. He doesn't love my sex life. That's not it at all. That's not a commitment to prayer. Here's how you know it's a commitment to prayer. First of all, you do it daily. You do it often, you do it deeply, you carve out time to actually commit this to the Lord, and the quality, not necessarily the quantity, the quality of your prayer is greater than the quantity of all your complaints and your lectures and your arguments. That's when we know you're really committed to pray. In essence, you pursue oneness with Christ so that you can restore oneness with your spouse. Lastly, there's a plan about sexuality. Right? You have conversation, agreement, prayer, and a plan. In other words, a time of absence in marriage must never be indefinite, open-ended. There needs to be a plan to return to a regular rhythm of sexual intimacy. And Paul states that the time of abstention is to be limited. He uses that word. Some of you have gone months and months and weeks and weeks without conversation and without intimacy. I know couples have gone years. I'm not talking about the physical issues with that, though there are plenty. I'm talking about the oneness in a relationship that a couple would not come together in that way. There's some brokenness there. Months and months, weeks and weeks without that kind of intimacy will do harm to the marriage. And here's what will happen. The sexual appetite will be satisfied in something else. Women have a sexual appetite as well. 
men usually will find their satisfaction in porn. They'll take their little virtual pimp called an iPhone or laptop, and they'll find a virtual prostitute to visit. Typically, when I sit down with a couple and they haven't had sex for a long time, 99.9% of the time, the man has a porn issue. If he's like, I just don't feel like it. And typically, that leads for women to have all kinds of emotional affairs, imaginary or not, through Facebook and all kinds of things. Why do you think Facebook has become so popular, such a destructive thing in the marriages of many people? The sexual union is an act of covenant renewal. But more than that, it protects our oneness. In husbands and wives, you are given to one another, not to anyone else. You are given to one another to protect your purity. And men, you need to lead in this. You need to pursue purity. You need to pursue conversation. You need to pursue prayer. But women, you need to help them lead. You need to help them. And sometimes that help, especially for a man who's caught in pornography, is to enlist the help of other men, i.e. pastors and elders, and say he's not responding. That's what the family's here for. In closing, he says in verse 6 and 7, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. Now what does that imply about the rest of everything he just said? It's a command. So don't take issue with me. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And Paul is not saying, here's good advice. He's saying, this is the command of God. And now he's going to give some advice. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. It's likely Paul is, well, he is single at this point. Scholars disagree whether he ever had a wife or not, and whether even some of the descriptions he has in chapter 7 are of himself, his own experience. Who knows? He's single right now, and he's speaking about singleness. We'll speak about singleness and the beauty and glory of singleness next week. But all gifts are from God, and they are good when used according to His design, and each has their own gift from God. And Some are given the gift of marriage. It is a gift. It is something you are entrusted by God to care for. And others are given the gift of singleness, and that's a gift. Not a curse, a gift. But both the single and the married have been given the gift of sexuality and both have abused it. Drawing from his Corinthian experience in New York, Tim Keller said, like a couple days ago said this, he said that the biggest obstacle he has run into in terms of repentance for revival in the church or Christians is not deep philosophy or arguments about evolution. He said, perhaps the greatest obstacle for repentance and joy is that almost all singles outside the church and the majority inside the church are sleeping with each other. He said that people will come up to him all the time and want to argue philosophy and talk about who Jesus was and who he really wasn't and all those things, and he will often end the conversation or maybe begin it by saying, who are you sleeping with? And they typically go, how'd you know? It is ravaging the church. 
And people use all kinds of things to hide behind to pretend like that's not what the real issue is, but it's a huge issue. And I would agree with Tim Keller, but I also would say that the maturity as a church, even our maturity in any church for that matter, is hindered by singles having too much unbiblical sex, which is any, but also married couples not having enough good old-fashioned joy-filled biblical sex. By divine design, sexual intimacy is one of those needs that we cannot control or satisfy alone. And the beauty is we need someone else to minister to us. Beyond the physical, single or married, this truth reveals to us that we have heart-level needs that we cannot fulfill ourselves. You cannot, we cannot save ourselves, we cannot fix ourselves, we cannot heal ourselves, and oftentimes we use sexuality to try and accomplish all three of those. What we really need for that heart-level need that sexuality kind of screams at us, we need Jesus to minister to us, to give us what we each need. Jesus calls us actually first to be one with him before we can be one with anyone else. And when we are one with him, we can enjoy a oneness with others that is immeasurably wonderful. And this will require, single or married, that you deny yourself, you deny your feelings, you resist your intellectual objections, and you accept that God's ways are not only right, but they are good. That they are good. See, apart from Jesus, there is no joy or fulfillment in this life. Though you might find momentary pleasure, it will not last and it will never satisfy. Sexuality will not be the gift that Jesus gives to bless you. Apart from Him, it will remain a God that controls you and it leads you away from Him. And whether you are married or single, know this, that true joy and fulfillment that you deeply want It comes from the same person, which is Jesus. If you're single, guess what? It comes from Him very directly. He is who you have to satisfy that need that you're trying to find satisfaction outside of Him through sexuality. But if you're married, it also comes from Jesus because it's Jesus who is acting through your spouse. So any love that they give you any time they give of themselves, any oneness they pursue, you know that that is Jesus in them because they would never do that in their own flesh. So it's coming from the same place. The presence, though, of sexual dissatisfaction as an individual or a couple means, I believe, the absence of Jesus in your life. That's where the problem is. According to Ephesians 5, marriage and all that goes with it is the mysterious display of Jesus' relationship to His church. And therefore, fixing or healing or restoring our brokenness comes from drawing closer to Jesus and to abide in Him. And specifically, to abide in His commands. Because in Jesus' commands is where His love is. And I realize 
we can't obey Jesus on our own. I realize that it's God's grace even enabling us to desire and to empower us to do that. But it's also Jesus' grace that protects us when we fail in that pursuit. But the reality is, abiding in Jesus and his ways is where joy and love is found. So I'll close with John 15 where Jesus said it himself. If you think about doing it any other way than what God says, married or single, know this. He says, Jesus, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. My greatest hope for us as a church, as an individual, single person, or a couple, is that you will begin to see the commands like I've read today as a place of joy, a place where Jesus is. And we will take the Lord's Supper together to remind us of several things. First of all, when you're coming up to have communion, you're having a supper with the Lord. It's a meal of Jesus who already knows all your brokenness. He already knows everything you've done and everything you're going to do. And so it's a meal where He is declaring to you and you're reminding yourself that you are forgiven. You're not defined by your past, whether that happened a few minutes ago or a few years ago. You are no longer defined by that. You are forgiven. You are cleansed by the blood of Jesus who took away your guilt and He took away your shame. But it also reminds you that the tomb is empty. That you not only have a new life to live, you have the strength to do it. Christ in us has power to help us live lives that honor Him and have marriages that are full of joy. And it's also a reminder, because we're taking it together, that this is a family meal. So brothers and sisters are coming up, taking a meal. Brothers and sisters have brokenness. And some of you need to understand that you have responsibility to care for one another. This is a family. This is not just, hey, we all gather and five pastors take care of us. This is a priesthood of believers, and there's some brokenness in marriages and relationships that you're much more connected with than I'll ever be. And you need to be available to them. Available to singles who are struggling, available to married couples who are struggling, and then to be transparent about your own struggles. That is why we're brought together in community to grow in Christ, to mature in Christ. If you are here but not here, you'll not grow in Christ. We want you to be a member of the family so that you can experience the joy that God has for you.